good. I'd like to ask for your uh, attention. Breath as part of bodily experience, uh, the royal road to the stilling of thought as uh, recommended in the early texts. Um, you may recall one of the Buddha's uh, pedagogical, uh, basically throwbacks. It's a rather tragic incident that preceded the teaching of Anapanasati. It was uh, a number of suicides in the monastic community uh, due to uh, wrongly grasped teachings on the unattractive nature of the body. Um, so monks killing themselves, basically, or as it's so uh, discreetly is referred to in the suttas, were taking the knife. The horror of every meditation teacher. If you want to, <laughs> if you want to freak your meditation teachers, threaten suicide. Um. So, uh, Buddha was teaching a suba kamatana, and then uh, going away, and suddenly coming back, and finding his monastic community reduced. Inquiring from Ananda where the monks are, and Ananda says, "Well, one day we had a problem, yeah? and uh, it would be good." if the Blessed One would teach another meditation <laughs> topic. Um, so these are the inaugust uh, auspices under which the teaching of Anapanasati came about. And uh, on, that, on that occasion, the Buddha was starting to teach mindfulness of breathing. And indeed, mindfulness of breathing is probably the only meditation topic I would uh, I would think is applicable under just about all circumstances. I would not have any hesitations or I don't see any uh, factors that would stop somebody from practicing that. You can even practice Anapanasati with a blocked nose. You can practice it when you're asthmatic. You, you can practice it. I cannot conceive of a circumstance in which Anapanasati could not in some way be used skillfully. I have no hesitation recommending it. It is probably the mainstay of my personal practice and um, it has immense benefits. Why is that? Um, well, in some way the function of breathing is, is obviously key in there and that function of breathing is quite unique. It's one of the few bodily functions we can control by our voluntary nervous system and by our involuntary nervous system likewise. Um, it's unlikely that you can do that with many of your bodily functions. You know, like I can't tell my uh, intestinal perist peristalsis to stop. You know, maybe you have trained that and I've, I have met people who have claimed that they're capable of doing this. I certainly can't do this. So there are bodily functions that are voluntary and there are bodily functions that are involuntary and um, breathing miraculously can be completely subjected to our voluntary uh, nervous system. In other words, I can control it, I can hold my breath, I can hyperventilate, I can breathe in a particular way, I can do pranayama. At the same time, and this is a, this little uh, fact we, I believe, 
um, has made it possible that we have survived so far, I can completely forget breathing and this body knows how to breathe. Imagine your very survival would depend on the fact that you did actually consciously recall mindful breathing for every in-breath. You know, it's safe to assume we'd all be dead by now, isn't it? So that already singles out breathing as a very unique process in our uh, physiology. Breathing also happens at a frequency which is observable, completely observable for our our sensory apparatus, you know, an average uh, of 15 breaths per minute is a frequency that we can have access to both in terms of tactile and um, yeah, mainly tactile uh, awareness. Now, not all of our body functions are, are as uh, easily observable or can be contacted in so obvious way as breathing. While you may be able to feel your heartbeat, um, it is probably difficult for you to hear whether you have a murmur or not, yeah? because the frequency of the heart and its movements happen to take place in a range that are difficult for us to uh, observe. While with breath, you can observe and experience consciously and in mindfully just about every aspect of it. There are rhythms which are too subtle for us to perceive. Maybe you're particularly gifted, but um, I would expect that most of you don't feel, you know, your, the tide in your spinal fluid. Yeah, maybe you're a craniosacral practitioner and you've trained this long and hard, and you pick it up in others, and maybe even pick it up in yourself, or you have exquisite gifts in that direction. But most people probably won't find. Um, there are other rhythms in our bodies. It's taken me about 10 years of Anapanasati to find out that actually my nostrils are not used equally. Yeah. So, and that they shift. Yeah. Every 10 or so minutes they shift from one to the other side. It's the predominant nostril in my breathing pattern. You know, I was slightly embarrassed about finding this out, S sitting there on my bum, practicing what I believe to be mindfulness of breathing, only to find out that my two nostrils are not doing equal amount of work. And that little fact has escaped my attention, so dutifully focused on my nose for a number of years, until this actually came on my screen. You know? Because I didn't never ask myself this question. Many of the things we only find out if we ask questions. Sensitivity alone does not guide us. This is maybe a crucial piece of insight. We need to ask questions. Pasteur's famous statement that um, in science, nature um, gives an advantage to people who are prepared uh, is probably a powerful uh, guideline also for meditators. If we are not prepared, by, in other words, if we're not directing our attention and asking specific questions, we may be uh, with our noses in front of something for a long time before we actually recognize that something is there. So, breathing. Um, as you know, breathing has 
in the, all the great cultures has registered as an important function. You know, the Greeks have their pneuma, the Indians their prana. Uh, that's where the bana in anapana sati comes from, breather. Um, the Far Eastern tradition have their chi, and even the Latin folks have their spiritus. So they all, all these cultures have understood somehow that breath is what connects body and mind. Breath is the vehicle by which body and mind can mutually influence each other. This is important to understand. Um, so the breath helps us modulate the mind via the stilling of the body. Because it's more easy to still the body. We start with the body. We sit down. We establish a posture. We... Um, restrain our senses, we turn our attention inward, um, we close our eyes, thereby heightening uh, the intensity of our internal experience, the falling away of our most dominant sense, uh, chance to make us more aware of what we feel, what we think, and what we hear. Um, many people, when they want to listen very closely, they close their eyes, Yeah, you may have noticed, so... You may be doing this yourself. So attuning to breath means that when the body is still, the breathing pattern will become more relaxed and will become more soft. And when I attend to this, softening and the rhythm of that breathing, then the, some of the quality of my attentional object, namely breath sensation, will start to confer their quality onto the mind. So there is a mimicry going on. In other words, what I give my attention to is going to influence the climate of my mind. Yeah? Not just once, but what I give repeatedly my attention to, this will become my experience. What I give my attention to, my mind will begin to resemble. That is a principle by which, you know, this is the linchpin of Buddhist mind training. Whatever the mind takes up and frequently contemplates with the help of its attention, this will become the climate of the mind. That's what the texts say. Um, it's very plausible. It's very obvious that if I attend to something exciting, fast-paced, rapid, intense, then some of the quality of that experience will begin to color my mind. If I attend in equal measure to something soothing, something refined, something rhythmical, something delicate, then my mind's climate will begin to adapt to that. Yeah? And gradually the quality of my experience will begin to influence the quality of my mind state. So, mindfulness of breathing asks us to attune to the calming down of the bodily functions, particularly the breath rhythm, breath intensity, breath sensation. And by doing so, as I'm sitting still, the body is likely to relax in, into sitting still and is likely to soften its breathing. 
the mind will begin to soften. So if I sustain my attention on that softening of the breathing pattern, then there's a great likelihood that my mind will start to resemble this by becoming more calm, more receptive, more quiet. Simple enough. The theory is simple. Uh, The practice meets with uh, all kinds of resistances because obviously um, our mind uh, isn't neutral. We're not neutral in the management of our attention. We all have agendas. Um, The agendas are simple. Maximize gratification, minimize pain and what is unpleasant. That ranges from anything from boredom to uh, discomfort. Um, So my attention generally seeks out. It just it doesn't just sit there neutrally waiting to be stimulated. It actually actively reaches out and looks for stimulation. That is the habit. That is the pattern. It actively tries to minimize things I feel disagreeable. So my attention is not simply available or disposable at great to a great extent my attention has already a little agenda going so if you tell me i should attend to my breathing my attention immediately asks okay what's the kick in it yeah what do i get yeah why should i do that does it feel good will i get something points rewards sweets you know will i get flags on my head for every mindful in breath or will i get candies Um, So there is generally a connection between an expected or promised gratification and my attentional movement. If I just ask my attention to be attending to something that doesn't promise immediate gratification, I'll find it quite difficult to sustain attention there. I will meet my habit of gratification-seeking and Uh, avoidance of discomfort very soon and my attention will be clamoring for reward when I when it is asked to be attending to breathing patterns and it will take some time and it will take some effort and it will take some discipline and it will take some method and it will take some willingness to postpone gratification generally rated as a sign of maturity in psychological terms Um, for my mind to actually be able to establish a pleasant abiding by staying with the breathing experience. That is counterintuitive. That's why it is difficult, because it goes against the grain of my habituated attentional patterns. As simple as the instruction is, as simple as the activity is, as hard is it to sustain an attentional focus on something that does not attenuate my discomfort and does not immediately gratify uh, my wish for uh, agreeable experiences. Now, obviously, uh, since you're all seasoned meditators, you know that mindfulness of breathing can be highly pleasant. It can be very pleasant to just sit here and gently caress your internal organs with an in-breath and an out-breath. It can be quite ecstatic. But for most of us, that's not how it begins. Uh, the rare meditator just sit down and goes into a, one ecstatic in-breath after the next, after the other. 
while it is possible for the mind to achieve such states, and you know, long before you have absorptive depth in your meditation, you will have a great feeling of easefulness, great feeling of pleasant, pleasant abiding. You will have uh, energetic and blissful mind states long before you go to a jhana. Samadhi feels good, yeah, in a sort of blameless way. Even if you attach to it, it's still good to have. Don't worry about the attachment. Worry about getting there. Once you're getting there, we're going to look at the attachment. So don't use the possibility for attachment as an argument against practicing stillness and the calm associated with uh, pleasant abiding. However, when we're trying to do this, we find that there is continuous necessity to make choices because something in my mind comes up and says, well, okay, I can attend to this breath, but I, I can also think about some nice things, you know. And these nice things, thinking about them is not as nice as having them, but still, it is nicer than just a boring breath. Yeah? So why don't we think a little bit about nice things? Yeah. Things about the past, things about the future. Um, it's hard to do statistics, but anecdotal evidence suggests that uh, the younger you are, the more you think about the future, and the older you get, the more you think about the past. <laughs> so we need to make choices. If we want to favor this bringing attention to the felt experience of breathing, we need to make choices. Now these choices need to be ma made in a fairly sustainable way, and they need to be coherent and regular. So we have basically two tasks. If we do Anapanasati, there's basically two jobs. Job one is finding a location of breath, finding what we call an anchor, a place where you can go to at which you receive the sensations of your breathing. If you have any doubt where to do this, go into your belly. Most of you will have done many years of this and you will have identified an area in which it is most easy for you to attend to the sensations of breathing. In other words, to, you go there with your attention and you inhabit that area. Don't make it too small. Obviously, if this is in your belly or in your chest, you have a lot more space than if it's in the tip of your nose. If it is in your belly, make sure that it is hand-sized. Start with at least a hand-sized area which you pay attention to. Any good basis for samadhi will need an embodied quality. Yeah? The only reliable way of finding samadhi is learning to have an embodied sense of your breathing. Anything else is not really reliable. You're risking that you're kind of focusing on some mentalized construct and you split off and it may go quite still but it may also be quite dead and a little apocalyptic yeah. and you know after a few years you notice that you're somewhere in a split off mildly dissociated parallel dimension and somehow devoid of sati and that this isn't actually very transformative although it may be peaceful so you want to make sure that your samadhi has a basis on embodied Access. Yeah. So find an anchor. Belly, chest, nose would be obvious areas. And 
you learn to inhabit that space. You learn to go back there after you've done some scanning through the body, after you've learned to do the grounding, the centering, getting your fulcrums right, getting your alignments going. A few minutes of this at the beginning of every sitting, you settle for the breathing pattern. You're gradually softening your attention and melting into that place of your breathing anchor. And you're trying to abide there. And you're trying to identify four different stages. I mentioned them already. This is the arising stage. Something appears. Then it's the increase, the intensification stage. It goes up towards its climax. Then there is the decrease, the, the waning phase. That's where we usually cut off. And then there is the disappearing phase where it tapers off and stops being noticeable. Now, we learn to actually hold attention on the whole sequence of these things. Yeah, This is not as easy as it sounds. Usually we're interested in the bit just before the climax. Yeah, With nice things we're interested that they reach that hump. With not so nice things we're interested that they stop. So we learn to extend attentional focus. That's one of the things we do. Attention is trained in two directions. One is temporal continuity, one is spatial stability. Right now we're doing temporal continuity, yeah, if we want to be technical. And we're doing this on the basis of the sensations connected to our breathing experience. Our exercise has basically two components. One is called plan A, that is our actual anchor and staying, bringing that task to mind, attending to that task, and staying as long as possible with that task, with the greatest degree of continuity and refinement. Plan B is very important. Plan B kicks in when we find that we're not doing what we have agreed with ourselves we're doing. Plan B is what comes into play when you find your mind is wandering, when you find you're dreaming or sleeping, when you find you're off somewhere, you're not doing your task, then it is important that you bring back your mind's attention as quickly as possible. Plan B is almost as important as plan A. Get plan A clear, but make sure plan B is ready there to kick in when plan A isn't working. Your will and your effort and your discipline is needed with plan B. Plan A needs your sensitivity, it needs your care, it needs a welcoming friendliness, it needs curiosity, it needs interest. Plan B needs discipline. So when you find you're off, try to make clear to yourself that this is detrimental to what you're trying to do right now. Don't try to be moral. Try to be <laughs> pragmatic. Yeah. Many of the things we can think of in our meditation practice are perfectly blameless in terms of ethics, but in terms of samadhi, they're, de they're detrimental. So doing your holiday planning, figuring out what happened in your last marriage, um, doing recipes, having sex fantasies, this is relatively blameless in terms of morals. You know, it doesn't cost anything, it doesn't hurt anybody, it, you know. Um, I would expect we've all been there, but it's totally 
useless or even detrimental in terms of samadhi. So make yourself clear that you have made time to be here, to practice something precious with people who support you in this, in their own quiet ways. And it is important that you do not waste time. So plan B asks you to don't take any second bites. Return to plan A, to the area, to your anchor, and to gently and patiently return to that exercise without making any judgments about yourself. Here, mindfulness is as non-judgmental as its famous definition seems to say. It's particularly non-judgmental about yourself. So the deal is, you're not making any statements about your person on the basis of meditation experience. Yeah, and you're going to be your friend. Please promise that to yourself, that for the time of this retreat, you're going to be your friend. You're not going to let yourself down. However miserable you may feel, however aversive you may feel, however you may not get what you think you should, um, you may, you're not going to let yourself down. And you're not, particularly not, making statements about who you are and what your character is and what your temperament is on the basis of your meditative experience. Good, let us practice plan A, anchor, plan B, um, rest is not so important. Yeah. More about this later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.